Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. When you find that, please stand with me. I'm going to read verses 16 through 34. Today we're going to see Paul building gospel bridges and how we can do the same. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For indeed, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And Lord, we thank you that your word is true, that it is inerrant and infallible and inspired by you. Thank you, Lord, that you've given it to us. Thank you that you have preserved it. And we pray now by your spirit, through your word, that you would change our hearts according to your will and your purposes. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please be seated. You 
In the 1960s in Afghanistan, there was a dangerous problem. Afghan villagers, while going to the market or to school, risked falling to their deaths, crossing flooded rivers on really old, unstable bridges. So they called up the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and asked them to design a bridge, and they did. They designed a new kind of bridge, and it was a kind of bridge that could be replicated and put over other rivers, and as a result, many lives were saved. Many people didn't die falling into flooded rivers. They built a physical bridge. You, you can build those. They're all over the place, right? We love bridges. Many of them are beautiful, and you can build physical bridges, and what they do is they close geographical gaps. From one place, you can get to one place to another. You can also build relational bridges. We talk about that like, hey, we've got to build bridges of friendship or bridges between people that are having issues together and need to be reconciled. But the most important kind of bridge that you can build is a spiritual bridge, gospel bridges to Jesus, so that people have the opportunity to respond to the gospel call to repent and believe and be saved. In Athens, Paul built a gospel bridge. Paul shared the gospel with pantheistic, polytheistic, philosophy-minded Greeks, and he did so by building gospel bridges. We are called by God as Christians to be Christ's ambassadors, to be really be bridge builders, and to do that, we need to step outside of our insulated Christian bubbles, really, and learn to bridge the gap between the gospel and today's world. Build a gospel bridge to Jesus wherever people are. Now, I've said over and over again about the book of Acts that, um, that it is descriptive, not prescriptive, that it, it describes what God did. It doesn't prescribe everything we are supposed to do. But what we have here in this passage is really a blueprint that every one of us needs if we're going to build gospel bridges. Something that we can use as an example to build a gospel bridge to Jesus wherever people are. Now what we see in this passage are three actions that Paul takes. The first thing he does is he unmasks people's foolish idolatry then he reveals God's true identity, and then he trusts God's perfect sovereignty. So let's start in verse 16, and we'll start with what Paul did as he unmasked people's foolish idolatry. He is waiting in Athens, and we know who he's waiting for. He's waiting for Timothy and Silas. You see that in verse 15. He's waiting in Athens, and as he waits, his heart is getting stirred up. It is getting provoked as he observes all the idols throughout the city. And that word provoked is a strong word. It means to be really uh, sharpened, to be greatly distressed. It's like if you were sharpening a knife, you've got to distress it. And his, his heart was being distressed as he here is in Athens, the religious center of the Roman Empire. It's a prominent city of culture and of learning and of philosophy. And in spite of its great learning, it, it was blasphemous to God. It was full of vain idols. 
Now, this may have been Paul's first trip to Athens. We don't have any record that he had been here before or went here afterwards. And instead of being impressed by this incredibly you know, famous and historical city, Paul was actually depressed by its idolatry. The city was full of idols. Literally, that means it was given over to idols. It was literally under idols, like being flooded, being swamped by idols. There were that many idols in the city. It was overgrown, like if you take a vegetation type word, it was overgrown, it was luxuriant with idols, it was thick with idols. I like to say it was packed like sardines with idols. One writer said that it was easier to find a god than a man in the, in the city of Athens. There were, there were just, there were just um, altars to false gods throughout the entire city. So here you have Athens for all of its beauty. The best Greek artists and architects could offer, and it did not honor God. You can think of cities like that where there are huge, beautiful buildings and the general tone of the city is ungodly. So God, God was not honored in Athens and Paul was not impressed. Paul was not impressed. He's like Jeremiah, Jeremiah 20, verse 9. The word of God burned like a fire in his heart, and he could not keep silent. Look at verse 17. Here's what he does. His heart's provoked. The idols are everywhere. And so he begins to do what he was doing in Thessalonica and Berea. He was reasoning. He was discussing. He was having conversations. He was having question and answer times in the synagogue with the Jews and devout people, and not only there, he was out in the marketplace, out in the agora, where people just showed up and did their business throughout the day, and he went out there every day and spoke with whoever was around. It's like if you said, you know, this afternoon, I'm going to go to the plaza in Orange, and I'm going to speak with whoever I meet about Jesus and the resurrection. If you say, we're going to go to the supermarket later, or tomorrow I'm going to be at work, or I'm going to be at school tomorrow, and what I intend to do is whoever's around, I'm going to talk to them about Jesus and the gospel. That's what Paul was doing. Now, you might say, well, hold on a minute. You don't realize the challenging audience I have to deal with in the places that I operate on a daily basis. Oh, yes, I do. People are against the gospel. People don't want to hear it. People don't want to... uh, to cross the bridge that you want to give them. I know, and and Paul knew all too well. Paul had a very challenging audience. It was a cultured, educated people that were very proud of their heritage. Verse 18 tells us there were Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who were interacting with him, having these discussions. You've got the Epicureans. Their big deal in life was pursuing pleasure as the chief purpose of life. They valued a peaceful life free of pain. Does it sound familiar? Am I describing anyone? They taught that God either did not exist or was too far removed to care about man. They were self-gratifying and licentious. They wanted whatever feels good. They were just like the writer of Ecclesiastes said, life living under the sun apart from God. They were vain, they were futile. The Epicureans were there, and so were the Stoic philosophers. On the other end of the spectrum from the Epicureans 
Their name came from the painted stoa or the portico that their founder taught. And they were pantheists. They believed that everything was God and God was in everything. They believed in this impersonal power or force. And so they lived in passionless conformity of their wills to basically whatever will happen. Think Russell Crowe in The Gladiator. They were unmoved by external circumstances. The highest virtue to them was man's ability to reason. They were about individual self-sufficiency. They were proud of their moral sincerity. They were proud of their sense of duty. And they believed that suicide was better than a life lived without dignity. They lived as self-made men and took pride in themselves. And they were on their way to hell. Both the Epicureans and the Stoics were hostile to the gospel. They were on different ends of the spectrum. One sought pleasure, one sought pride, and they were both enemies of the gospel. One writer said that the two worst enemies the gospel has ever had to contend with are the principles of the Epicureans and the Stoics, pleasure and pride. What you have wrapped up in these two schools of thought are man's misguided attempts to come to terms with life and it doesn't get any different today. People recycle the same ideas. They might call them by another name, but people are seeking pleasure. People are taking pride in a supposedly moral life. And sadly, many professing Christians lean towards Epicureanism or Stoicism. Pleasure or pride, legalism or license, and neither are gospel truths. They're against the gospel. And when you sum up what the Epicureans and the Stoics believed, neither the Epicureans nor the Stoics could come up with an answer for life's basic questions. They couldn't answer the question of our existence. They couldn't answer about our purpose or our final destiny in life. It's like Ecclesiastes 7, 16 and 17 were written for Epicureans and Stoics. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? As Romans 1.22 says, professing to be wise, they became fools. As Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And these are the people that Paul was building a gospel bridge to. Imagine you say, you know, I'm really inspired by, by what Paul did, and I want to build gospel bridges too. In fact, you may even say this, I actually want to build a real bridge. <laughs> I actually just want to build a bridge because I see there's a place in the city that needs a bridge, like a real, real live bridge. And so you go out and you get all your materials and you, you lay down a really nice bridge. It's beautiful. It's, it's well built. It's, it's great. And, and you tell everyone in the city, I built this bridge for everyone. And they all look at you and laugh and say, we don't want to go over your bridge. We like the bridge we have over here better. We don't, we don't want your bridge. That's exactly what happened to Paul in a spiritual sense. He built a gospel bridge. They didn't want it. They rejected it. There is a way, the Bible says, that seems right unto a man, and the way is the way of death. You will find that people will, will fight tooth and nail for the lies that they hold dear. They don't realize they're believing lies. It's just all they know. And they will dismiss the truth just like they did with Paul. Now, what did they call Paul? An idle babbler. 
You might say, well, that's not that bad. He's just calling them babies. You know, he's just saying, he's, they're just calling him a baby. It's just, it's just a little word. Well, actually, it was a very strong word. It literally meant seed picker, like a bird picking up seeds off the ground, like you're picking stuff up that's not that important and, and it's pretty cheap. That word later came to mean a man who gathers and sells junk. Like you're picking up scraps and trash and you're going and selling it. No one wants your stuff. Then it became known as a man who was zealous for second-rate wisdom. That's what they're saying to Paul. What you have isn't as good as what we have. And then finally, this word came to mean a generally worthless person. So when they called him a seed picker, when they called him a babbler, what they were doing is showing their contempt for Paul. They hated what he stood for. And they were contemptuous towards him. Other people said, well, you know what? He's a preacher of foreign divinities. It's a good name for a fantasy football team. Someone actually made that their name once. Uh, why was it foreign to them? Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Because Jesus and the resurrection was foreign to them. They didn't know what he was talking about. It was foolishness to them. Just like when you try to build a, a gospel bridge to people and they're like, we, I don't know what you're talking about. You, know, you cannot assume that people know the gospel. You've got to assume otherwise because people don't know the gospel. You might say, well, wait, they grew up in America. They've got to know the gospel. No, people don't know the gospel. There are a lot of professing Christians that can't explain the gospel. How would you expect a pagan who's never opened up the Bible to know what it says about Jesus and the resurrection? You'll notice, too, that, that Paul did not change his message for Athens. Like, hey, because I'm in Athens, I won't tell them everything about the gospel because they might get offended. You see, the gospel is an offense to those who don't believe. Jesus is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for those who reject him. What he did, though, is he changed the mode of how he spoke. He found a clear, bold, humble, kind way to tell the truth. That's what we need to do. We need to find very clear ways to tell the truth, to always seek to be humble and kind as you tell the truth. But at the end of the day, truth must win out. How you share the gospel is important. How you come across is important. But what is of ultimate importance is what you actually say. Do you bring the real biblical gospel to people who are in desperate need of it? May it always be said of us that we preach Jesus and the resurrection. They bring him to the Areopagus, verse 19. And it's not only a place, but it was a governing council. It was a group of people who made big decisions. They met on the hill of Erez, Mars Hill, west of the Acropolis. And they were an important governing body. They used to be even more important, but with the rise of democracy in 5th century BC, their, their power to rule went away, but they still had a lot of authority in religion and ethics and morals in Athens. They were a court, the court that used to pass sentence on the worst of criminals. Now they are deciding serious religious matters. And all I can say is, don't you think Paul must have been just blown away by the places he got to preach the gospel? 
I hope you're blown away by the places that God actually leads you to be able to preach the gospel. You have keys to places that I don't have keys to. You have inroads into people's lives that other people don't know. And God has uniquely gifted you to go and take the gospel and build gospel bridges in places, again, that maybe no one else can get into. And here Paul is in the Areopagus. And they're telling him, verse 20, you are bringing strange ideas to our ears. They're not loving him. They're not saying, wow, this is great. They're saying, you're saying some strange stuff. You need to explain what you're talking about. Now, he is not on trial. He is there to explain himself. Verse 21 tells us that the Athenians and the foreigners spent all their time hearing new ideas. See, the ancient Greeks had a lust for the latest news, just like we do today. And Paul had already unmasked their foolish idolatry in small groups and in one-on-one conversations. Now he is about to do the same thing in a very formal gathering. Verse 22, he stands up. He addresses the Areopagus. He says, men of Athens, you are really, really religious. And what he's saying is, you're more religious than normal. You are fearful of the gods You are superstitious. Verse 23, I observed the objects of your worship and I saw an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. You'll notice that Paul does not begin with an exposition of God's word. He would have done that with the Jews who knew the word of God. But here he starts with their devotion. He points out their normal practice in life. And he had a lot to work with in Athens. There were a lot of altars to an unknown God in Athens. Athens was filled with statues dedicated to the unknown God. Almost 600 years before Paul was there in Athens, a plague hit the city. And a man named Epimenides let loose a flock of sheep across town. And every time a sheep would lay down, the closest altar that it was near, they would sacrifice the sheep to that God. But if a sheep laid down somewhere where there was no altar, they would make a new one and say, to the unknown God. And what Paul was doing is unmasking this this pagan idolatry. And you might even say, you know, I am inspired by what Paul was doing. I want to do that. If God would give me the grace to do it, I would love to be able to be used of him to point out where people are off base and show them the truth. But if you're going to do that, if you're going to be used of God to unmask people's idolatry, you've got to confess your own idolatry first. A good question to ask yourself is, am I provoked by the world or pleased with it? Am I offended by what offends God or am I conformed to the world in such a way that my mind is not being transformed on an ongoing basis by the word of God and I actually do what 1 John 2 says not to do? I I love the world and the things in it. So you will either love God or be sucked into the world And Paul was able to unmask people's idolatry because he he knew the true God and he lived a life that reflected it. 
Moving on, he, he reveals God's true identity. He just, just didn't leave him hanging and say, well, you guys are all a bunch of idolaters and then go. Verses 24 to 31 shows us he didn't waste time in Athens. He redeemed the time for the days are evil, as Ephesians 4 tells us, and the content of Mars Hill message was this. Behold the one true God. Behold the one true God. This is the privilege of, of a believer in Jesus to be able to say to people, I can explain to you who God is because I have the word of God and I want you to see what, he, what he's like. Paul says to them, what you worship in ignorance, what you worship as unknown, you're admitting that you don't know and I wanna tell you what you've admitted you don't know. I'm gonna proclaim this to you. I'm gonna reveal to you God's true identity. And what you see here is that he reveals God in five different ways. He reveals God as creator, as sustainer, as Lord, as Savior, and as the judge. Verse 24, he reveals God as creator. He said, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Now he's cutting at the root of the tree that they have been trusting in. He's saying, he doesn't live in all the temples that you've created. He's outside of that, he's other than that. He starts at the beginning with God the creator and we as his creatures which is a vastly different worldview than the Epicurean chance combination of atoms and the virtual pantheism of Stoics. A completely different worldview because Paul knew they had to change their mind about God. They had to move, if they were gonna move from pagan lies to the truth, they had to think differently about who God is. Deuteronomy 10, 14 tells us, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. He's the creator. He also reveals God as the sustainer of his creation. Verse 25, he is not served by human hands as though he needed anything because he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You woke up this morning because God kept you alive through the night. Your heart is beating right now because God is sustaining you. He's the sustainer. Paul says, by the way, God is bigger than any temple man's hands could build. And, and he can't be presented, represented by anything man can make with his hands. Isaiah 42, 5, thus does the Lord God, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to people in it. He's saying, God is the creator and the sustainer of your life. And then he says, he's the Lord. Verse 26, he made from one man every nation to live on the face of the earth and he determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He determined when they would live where. He's telling them we all come from Adam through Noah and God created us and we are obligated to him. He decided where you would be. You go, how did the Americans get in America? And how did the Germans get over there? And how did the Canadians get up here? Because God set up the boundaries of their existence. He determined their dwelling place and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Deuteronomy 32.8, the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. He divided mankind. He fixed the borders of the peoples. He is the sovereign Lord over all. And, and 
Verse 27 says, and he did all that so that they would seek after him and even feel their way toward him, like grope for him. He's telling him, you're blind. You can't see, but he is actually not far from any of us. It's not like the gods of the Epicureans and the Stoics, which are distant or non-existent or unconcerned. He is actively involved. So why you can believe 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. That's why you can believe it when he says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Moving on to verse 28, Paul says, in him... We live and move and have our being. He's quoting one of the poets. He says, as some of your own poets have said. And he quotes another poet. We are his offspring. He quotes two Greek poets here. Epimenides, the Cretan, who he also quotes in Titus 1. And then Aratus. And he quotes them, not because their words are, are biblical truth, but because their words reflect biblical truth. Because he's building a bridge. He's using something they know from their culture and saying, see, even people within your own culture have said this about him. He says in verse 29, so based on that, being his offspring, we should not think that God is like silver or gold or stone. God is not an image formed by the the art and imagination of man. Here he is in a city dedicated to the art and imagination of man. He's telling them, you have to have right ideas about God. You, You can't, You can't cling to this wrong idea that created things can can represent God. And then verse 30, he says, he's the savior. He's overlooked the times of ignorance. He's patient with you. And, And now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He's making a broad statement about all of humanity. And he's saying, you have to repent of your sins. You need a savior. Paul is giving them ample evidence for this altar to an unknown God that they're ignorant of, and he's saying, you are sinful, you are guilty, you are are not victims. You need to turn from your sin to God who made you and sustains you and is sovereign over you. You need to repent. By the way, if you're a Christian, you should get used to repenting your whole life, repenting of wrong attitudes, repenting of, of hating other people, repenting of loving your sin more than loving Jesus. Repent of every sin that you can think of when God brings it to your mind. Uh, the, the whole Christian life is one of continual repentance. And then verse 31, he says, God is the judge. And he's gonna get very specific now. He says, he fixed a day. Not only did he fix the boundaries of your existence, but he has fixed a day. There's a day coming when he is going to judge the world in righteousness through a man that he appointed. And he gave assurance to everyone by raising this man from the dead. It's his choice, it's his timing, it's his right. He's telling them you have no choice in the matter. Man's supposed sovereignty is a fallacy. It's a man that God appointed. And now for the first time, Paul is referring to Jesus as the righteous judge. Now we would say, well, I I like to call him Savior. I like to call him Lord. Good Shepherd is awesome. But we must acknowledge him as judge. The first thing that Paul is telling them about Jesus is that he is the judge. 
And he says, God gave assurance by raising Jesus from the dead. That the resurrection is the assurance that the person and the teaching and the work of Jesus were approved by the Father. Do you notice that Paul can't preach a sermon without bringing up the resurrection? We shouldn't either. Jesus rose from the dead. The Christian life does not make sense apart from the resurrection of Christ. That's why, by the way, the next city that Paul goes to from Athens is Corinth. You know what he tells the Corinthians? I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's message is moving it's progressing to, to this pinnacle of Jesus and the resurrection. He, he moves from knowing who God is, the creator, to what he does, sustain his creation, to his sovereignty, he is the Lord, and to his plans, uh, that he is the judge. And it's very clear that he's the sustainer, he's the creator, so we're his offspring, and he's the Lord. We need to understand and worship him in truth and there are plans in place, and there's an accountability that we have if we dishonor him, and if we refuse to believe in him, that we would be under judgment from the just judge. So we need to reveal God's true identity, creator, sustainer, Lord, judge, savior. It's evident, it, we're without excuse. He was telling them that, you're without excuse. You know, Satan specializes in identity theft and identity clouding and we need to be very clear about who God is and, and know him as he is and then present him as he is. This is what Paul did. He, he didn't only unmask their, their pagan idolatry, he, he revealed God's true identity. And then you'll notice in verses 32 to 34, he trusted God's perfect sovereignty the outcome of his message, look at verse 32. When they heard of the resurrection, some mocked. They sneered, they jeered, they hated what he had to say. They had disregard for what he was saying. They disagreed with Paul regarding the resurrection. They believed a lie. They thought their lies were better than the truth. Here's the lie they believed. This is a quote from their times. Once a man dies and the earth drinks up his blood, there is no resurrection. Diametrically opposed to the gospel truth. God says otherwise. God says otherwise. But some clearly rejected the message. They didn't want Jesus, and they didn't want to know about his resurrection. You know how God has made the wisdom of the world foolishness? All these people professing to be fools, professing to be wise, became fools. 2 Corinthians tells us if our gospel is veiled, if it is hidden, it's hidden to those who are perishing, in whose, God, in whose place the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they will not see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God seen in the face of Christ. So some clearly rejected the message. Verse 32 also tells us that others said, we want to hear you again about this. And at first glance, it's like, hmm, that's, that's not bad. They, they're excited, they're interested, there's an opening here. Um, they want to hear. They're curious. The problem with that is they delayed the inevitable. They had just been commanded to repent. That's not a good thing that they said, we're going to hear you again later about this because, hey, buddy, there's no, no guarantee you're going to hear this message again. So some rejected the message, some delayed the inevitable, and verse 33, Paul leaves. 
by the grace of God, by his grace alone, some believe. It wasn't because Paul was especially gifted in his, in his communication. It was because by God's grace, he chose them to believe. Verse 34, some men joined him and believed. Dionysius the Areopagite, he is from that council. He literally has to push away from the whole group and say, you know what, I believe what this man is preaching. And then Damaris, a woman, we don't know when she got saved, whether it was before or after this, this meeting, nothing else is known about her. And then others, I love the others in the Bible, like in Hebrews 11, and others, others of faith, you know, were tortured for Christ. But Jesus is the main point. And, and here others came to faith in Christ. This is how it's always going to be. People are going to either reject the message, they will delay making a decision about it, or they will believe. And the question I want to ask you is, do you believe the gospel message? Do you know the true gospel message? Are you truly saved? Do you truly know for sure? Romans 10 verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I hope you have that assurance today. 1 John 5 says, the witness is this, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. And if you have that life, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you, apart from anything you could do, then trust God's perfect sovereignty as you build gospel bridges. Trust his perfect timing. You know the most accurate clocks in the world today, get this, slip by only one second every 30 million years. Now, if you're a young earth guy like me where you say, you know, uh, 10 to 15,000 is all we pretty much need to, to take care of all of human history at this point, you're like, well, who's gonna be there to check? I mean, 30 million years, you're only going to lose a second? Well, the scientists at the National Institute of Standards and Technology in Boulder, Colorado, said it's not accurate enough. So what they did is they built a clock designed to only slip, get this, by a second once every 30 billion years, not million years. And the result is a clock that counts time by the femtosecond, a million billionth of a second. You don't need that clock. God works on his own clock. His perfect timetable. We think we know, and we think we know what's best, but he does. We don't. Only God knows. So here's what I want to say as you want to build a gospel bridge, and you wonder, well, when's all this thing going to wrap up? Don't lose heart. Don't become impatient. Keep believing him. Keep resting on his promises. Keep being who you know Jesus made you to be and doing what he gave you to do. Proclaim the gospel in a culturally sensitive way in the context that you're in, using any kind of springboard you can as a launching pad for the gospel. And remember this, only God changes hearts. Only God can open up hearts to the gospel. And all you can do is lay the straight stick of the gospel up against the crooked stick of the world's foolishness. Paul was waiting 
And while he waited, he worked for Jesus in the gospel. He was driven to initiate conversations with people and engage anyone he could with the gospel. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Downtime can actually be very fruitful doing time. Waiting time can be working time for the gospel. What are you building in your spheres of influence? Bridges or walls? Are you willing, as Paul was, to be ridiculed and mocked and be unpopular and hated and despised for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God? Because you will be trying to build a gospel bridge to people that will reject the message and will delay it, and some, praise God, by God's grace alone will believe. And like Paul in Athens, you probably see immorality, you see idolatry, you see hopelessness in your immediate world. You see people who need direction and answers and comfort and truth and hope, and you can learn from Paul's example right here in Acts 17 to build a gospel bridge to Jesus wherever people are. All who believe in Jesus then recognize him for who he is. Creator, sustainer, Lord, Savior, judge. And guess what you get to do when you make that recognition, when you know that with all your heart? You get to do what 2 Timothy 2.8 says for the rest of your life. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. You get to remember Jesus and the resurrection for the rest of your life. And then you get to build gospel bridges wherever people are. And there is only one reason you can do that. There is only one reason you can do that. Because Jesus came to earth to build a gospel bridge for us to save us. It's like those Army Corps of Engineers who helped in Afghanistan in the 60s. But, but this was in a more cosmic level. He saw people falling to their deaths every single day. Try, think about how you were trying so hard to make yourself right with God, trying so hard to, to just keep walking on a faulty bridge that's going to fail, believing the most absurd of lies and here is what we find out jesus loved us so much he built a bridge for us he saw our need we were believing satan's lies he provided for our need he came to earth and went to the cross and shed his blood in our place and jesus built a bridge he is the bridge he is the way and the truth and the life and he went to the cross and he died for us and that praise god is what we get to remember today when we come to the Lord's table. This is what we get to do right now. First Timothy 2 tells us there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, testimony born at the proper time. We come to a table to remember Jesus and his death and his resurrection and his promised return. As often as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And every time we partake, I want you to wait for us, we'll eat all together, but I, I say this pretty much every time, we say this every time we do this. This is for the family of God. 
If you believe with all your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you have forgiveness in Christ, and it's not based on anything you could have done, but only on his finished work, then you need to partake with us of this bread and cup. If you're not a believer in Jesus, this table is not for you. The Bible makes it very clear if anyone eats of the bread and drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner, he is guilty of the body and blood of Christ. And that means you just say, I don't really care what this means. If you truly care what it means and you need to partake, I do not know who came up with the idea that, well, if you've sinned a lot this week, you shouldn't partake. Well, if you've sinned a lot this week, confess your sins to God and believe what he did and partake and remember Jesus. This is to remember Jesus risen from the dead. Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread and broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. We are remembering what Jesus told us to remember. He gave us this table to repeat often because sometimes we forget. Today is the 15th anniversary of 9-11 and you, you know about it from the lead up all week long and you wake up and you go, yeah, that was 15 years ago today. Some of you weren't even born then. Some of you remember exactly where you were when you found out. I remember where I was. I was at my men's, men's small group at the time. And we remember. We, remembering that day, we grieve, right? But as Christians, we grieve, but not without hope as the rest of the world grieves. We grieve with hope of the resurrection. We rejoice in God's goodness. It's very easy. Just like some Christians lean towards Epicureanism and you know, licentiousness, and some Christians lean towards Stoicism and legalism, a lot of Christians lean towards hating versus loving and refusing to forgive, and it would, be, it would be very easy as Americans to say, we will never forget and we will never forgive what has happened and what happened on that day. All I can tell you is Jesus died for all of our hate and animosity towards anyone that we would refuse to love and refuse to forgive. It doesn't matter if it's a family member, a friend, a neighbor, Maybe a person who's done the worst thing imaginable to you that could ever be done. Or maybe it's a people group that you are just hating because of what they stand for that's opposed to the gospel. All I can tell you is that this table is the place to let all that go. Because if we believe that Jesus died and rose again and he forgives us, then we are, we are bound to walk in the freedom that he gave us to love and to forgive. I've said this often, but if you have an issue with somebody, don't keep coddling it and strengthening the hate or the animosity, but go to the cross with it. Go to the cross with it. Go to Jesus with it. That, that's, what, that's what Christians do. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
And Lord, we thank you that we can be reminded and never forget the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Thank you, Lord, that your word is true. Thank you that you are faithful and that you preserve your word and your, and your people and every one of your promises. And thank you, Lord, for providentially orchestrating human events. We trust in your perfect sovereignty. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you made peace by the blood of your cross. Lord, by your grace, may we remember Jesus risen from the dead every day, that we are reconciled by his shed blood. And Lord, may you set us free to love and to freely forgive and to build gospel bridges for a needy world. And we pray in Christ's name, amen.